And good evening from a very warm Charlotte. Happy Wednesday to you. It is March the 11th, 2020. I am James Brierton. It is Severe Weather Awareness Week carrying on here in the Carolinas. Last week, it was Severe Weather Awareness Week in North Carolina with a tornado drill on Wednesday. And we were lucky enough to bring you some special snippets from our friends at WCNC Charlotte. Well, joining us again this week as Severe Weather Awareness Week continues in South Carolina is Chief Meteorologist Brad Panovich back from WCNC. Brad, thanks for taking the time out again for us. So you got an opportunity last week, Brad, to go visit the Insurance Institute in Chester County, South Carolina. The rest of our audience is going to get familiar with it if they're not already with a rerun of our 2019 interview. But uh, tell us a little bit about what you saw down there at this great facility they've got. The interesting thing was how they test the uh, roofs in particular for hail. Um, you know, the, the, the standard test for hail was actually done with just a steel ball that dropped on a horizontal surface, a uh, roof surface. Well, what they did is they tried to recreate actual hailstones, how they are in nature. And so what they've done, they've gone out and done field studies where they try to measure uh, hailstones in the wild, if you will, um, to get a more accurate measurement of their density. And then they shoot them out at speeds that are more similar to what you see in a strong storm. Because what happens in most hail events is the, the hail is wind driven. It doesn't just fall. It's being blown by 60, 70, 80 mile an hour winds. And so they test um, roof structures in particular, metal, um, asphalt shingles, plywood, just to see how they withstand it. And then they can rate these shingles so that you have like as a consumer, a better idea of what you're getting into when you're gonna put these on your roof. And it also helps uh, the insurance uh, industry kind of understand like what kind of damage certain type hail can cause to your building. Well, let's talk a little bit about that roof because yeah. you just put a brand new roof on your home yeah. about a week before that EF1 tornado came through Charlotte. Did you get some ideas from the Insurance Institute? Yeah. So last year I went down there for one of their tests where they were taking a roof and they were submitting it to a hurricane. Basically what they did is they took wind and rain and they blew it at a home that had half the roof using what's called the fortified roofing system and the other half, a typical roofing system. So what they did is for several hours, I think the test went on for eight, 10, 12 hours, which is typical for hurricane winds. You know, they're going to last a long time. They, the, the winds went up and down and they blew rain. And so they wanted to see how much water intrusion they would get through the, the, the normal roof versus the fortified roof. And when I saw that demonstration, and at the end of last year, I, my roof needed to be replaced. I said, you know what? I'm doing that fortified roofing system. So every contractor who bid it on my house, I basically said, hey, I want this fortified roof. And, and a lot of them had never heard of it. So I had a PDF that they actually can print out on their website, um, disastersafety.org. And I gave it to my roofers. I'm like, okay, we can do that. And basically what they do is they tape the seams of the plywood, or in my case, the, the roofer decided just to put ice and water shield on the entire roof. Um, they also use underlayment that's synthetic with caps, um, cap nails instead of just regular nails or staples. And then they use double shank nails, which don't pop out when the wind rips on them. And the reason you do this is in a big storm, shingles are gonna fail. But with this fortified roofing system, if water gets underneath the shingles, you have these the layers of protection that will keep the rain out of your house. That's the goal is you don't want water getting into your house to cause further damage if the roof gets damaged. So I had just got my roof replaced a week before the tornado came through my backyard. I lost 15 trees in my yard um, and we only ended up losing 10 cap shingles, which are the shingles on the, on the peak. 
Um, those are weaker shingles and the nails held. The shingle was actually ripped off the roof. The nails did not pop out. And because I had that um, ice and water shield underneath, it actually kept the rain out of my house. So my roof held up pretty well. Considering I had a 71 mile an hour wind gust, I was pretty impressed on how well it did. And our viewers right now on our Facebook and our Periscope and our YouTube feed are looking at pictures <laughs> from your neighborhood from February the 6th. What have yeah. you seen in your neighborhood in terms of neighbors helping neighbors over the past month? You know, that event is going to be crazy. It was by far the worst uh, weather event in my neighborhood. And, you know, it seems now after the Nashville tornado, it doesn't seem nearly as bad because most of the homes escaped with minimal damage. Most of the damage in our neighborhood was all trees. And obviously, so those trees came down and did cause quite a bit um, roof damage. We had, I think, I don't know, 50 or 60 roofs damaged. Um, and you really didn't notice until the following days when you started to see the blue tarps go up everywhere. Um, and we had one house that was uh, heavily damaged because a tree fell through their kitchen in the back of their house. Um, but what's amazing is that here we are, you know, over a month removed. James, there are still tree guys all over my neighborhoods. There's still the sound of roofers nailing stuff. I hear still hear chainsaws and chippers um, and fences being put up. So it's a long process. It is still going to be a while. And uh, these trees, you know, there was just so many of them down that there's just wood everywhere. There's tons of firewood in my neighborhood um, and trees still stacked up all over the place. So I, I really, the thing that struck me most about that storm is how long it's taking for the cleanup process to be completed. And to remind folks, this is the same line that came through South Charlotte, starting over in that Pineville area through South Charlotte yep. and ended up in Matthews, where we, we showed you some pictures here on the Carolina oh. Weather Group. But, but, but Brad, I'm wondering, this is obviously really close to home for you and your neighbors. Yep. The next time we get into a weather awareness day, do you think the perception's a little bit different now for so many people who've came so close to this? Yeah. And I, I mean, honestly, for this event, people did a pretty good job. Uh, I, I didn't, I, yeah, there was some schools that didn't evacuate their students, but in general, uh, I think it was a pretty good success story considering we had an EF1 tornado um, go through the heart of South Charlotte and no injuries or deaths um, is pretty amazing. I hope that it serves as a wake-up call for a lot of people just to have a plan. I mean, that's that's the thing I preach all the time. It's like the warning times, I wish they were longer, but the average national warning time, lead time for a tornado is like 12 minutes. And we were about 16 minutes with those tornadoes back on the 6th. That's if you get the warning right at the beginning. What happens if you don't get the warning until halfway through or three-quarters full uh, of the way through? You only get like five, 10 minutes. And that's not the time to look at each other and go, where do we go? Um, a lot of people... Uh, especially in businesses and, and, and structures they weren't familiar with, had no idea where to go um, or didn't know what a tornado, tornado safety protocol is. So that's one of the things I think going forward I'm going to work on is try to educate people on getting that plan together. But I think you're right. I think people are going to take these more seriously. Um, I used to have a saying all the time at the coast when I did hurricane coverage, but you know, people's level preparedness is only as good as their memory of the last disaster. And it, it's just human nature. If people are going to remember this tornado and the next one, they're going to take it much more seriously because they have that recent memory of this event. And we unfortunately had another incident last week in Nashville that will be on a lot yeah. of people's mind with a deadly late night overnight tornadic event that came oh. on through playing out right yeah. in the middle of what was North Carolina's severe weather preparedness week. So for Brad, so anyone who may have missed some of the material that went out last week, what are yeah. some of the items that you would recommend that people have on hand to be informed and be prepared? 
the most important thing, first and foremost, is have at least three ways to get a warning. Um, and I mean three minimum. That would include watching us on WCNC. That would include uh, weather apps, text alerts, social media, radio, a, a, a weather alert radio. Um, have at least three. And the reason I say that is because often in these cases, one or two of those might fail. So you need some redundancy. So first and foremost, think about, do I have three ways to get a warning? And the WCNC Charlotte weather app is great. Our news app is great. Text alerts are awesome. The WIA, which is a wireless emergency alerts are great. But also, you know, Twitter notifications from me is pretty good. I have a lot of people that actually have done that. And um, I I'm kind of shocked how many people actually do that. They have my notifications turned on when they think there's going to be severe weather. Um, and I push out all our tornado warnings. The next thing is to have a plan. Um, so once you get the alert, you got to know what to do. So whether it's your home, your business, your school, or your place of worship, you need to know where to go for severe weather safety in all of those structures. So think about it when you're at work or school the next couple of days, where would I go in this building? And it's got to be in an interior room away from the outside walls and windows um, on the lowest floor possible. So make sure you have that um, plan in place. And those two things are really the most important things that you can do because those are universal. Those work with, you know, hurricane season. It works with earthquakes. Um, it works with just about any natural disaster to have um, a way to get the alerts, but also a way and a plan of what to do. And then obviously we talked about flash flooding, um, severe thunderstorms and lightning, which from a hazard standpoint, lightning, severe thunderstorms and flooding are much more frequent than tornadoes. Uh, I, I did a graphic in my class the other day about risk perception. Tornadoes have a very high risk perception but the actual hazard is small and it's just because the tornado is actually pretty small compared to the map, but severe thunderstorms, lightning and flooding have a small risk perception, but the threat is actually very large. You're most likely going to encounter one of those than you would a tornado. So it's important that you prepare for all types of severe weather because uh, we have a saying in our business, wind is wind and water is water. It doesn't really matter what causes those. If you get enough of either, it's going to cause problems. And for anyone who missed any of those explainers, you can find them at wcnc.com slash prepare. There's the plug. Uh, you can also find yeah. them here in the Carolina Weather Group uh, feed by scrolling up or checking out some of our, our latest posts. So, Brad, appreciate you coming on. So happy that you were able to get that work done on your home just before those storms, and hopefully yeah. other people will follow uh, that lead. Uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of our broadcast, we want to revisit our 2019 interview when we had a chance here at the Carolina Weather Group to learn about the insurance Institute. They've got one of the coolest jobs in the Carolinas, and it's oh. so great that we get to call this place home and that they constantly are welcoming you guys on down there, Brad. Yeah, and I would highly recommend go to disastersafety.org. They have a great site of all the things you can do to make your home weather ready and a way to, to talk to contractors because some of these things, James, they're super cheap. Like the things I had done to my roof, it only added an additional couple hundred dollars. When you're talking about, you know, a six figure roofing job, a couple hundred bucks, it could save you a long, a, a long history of having issues. And the other thing is my insurance company actually offers a discount for having a fortified roof installed. So really way, a good way to get a discount on premiums. And I should ask you before we go, Brad, uh, tomorrow, Thursday, yep. slight chance of seeing some storms? Yeah, I think Tennessee, unfortunately.
Unfortunately, it looks to be the area that's going to get hit the hardest, but that line of storms is going to move into the Western Carolinas late tomorrow at some point. So a wind and hail threat certainly possible, especially along and west of I-77. So uh, we're getting in that time of, time of the year, James, where, you know, March, April, May for us is big severe weather season. So we're, we're kind of entering that. And it's a good time to use those severe weather safety tips we just gave you to kind of put them into action over the next couple of weeks. Stay tuned, stay weather aware. They're tips that you know, you could use tomorrow, and if not tomorrow, it never hurts to be prepared for the next go-around. Absolutely. Thanks, Brad. We're going to go ahead now and take you to that 2019 interview and check out this place in Chester County, South Carolina. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, July 24th, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. Tonight is show number 285, and tonight we have with us Dr. Ian Giametko. Uh, he is the lead research meteorologist at the Institute uh, Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. We're going to be talking about hail and some of the research they've done with hail. Ian, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is... Uh, Kind of your, uh, your your first uh, gig with us, and I told you before the show, glad to know you're in the Carolina. So let's talk about what you do at the IBHS. Uh, our lab here in South Carolina was uh, built and, and opened in the fall of 2010. IBHS as an entity has been around almost since the 70s. It can trace its root back to a few different names and, and basically started as an adv- advocacy group. Uh, to help people better prepare for for severe weather and try to reduce the losses associated with severe weather. Well, in 2010, our, our research center opened, uh, and we're taking uh, the, the model of the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. So think about car crash tests. Um, it's been highly successful. The property insurance industry wanted to apply that to severe weather. And so $40 million later, in the midst of our economic recession, uh, trying to, to to bring that facility to life, uh, we have our lab, and it is a, a pretty neat place. Uh, our centerpiece is a full-scale uh, wind tunnel. We call it our large test chamber. Uh, we have 105 six-foot diameter fans that can take winds up to about 120, 130 miles per hour. Uh, we can do full-scale hail simulations. We can do wildfire ember attack scenarios in there. Uh, basically, anything the weather is out there, we can, we can throw at it. Um, and our, our goal is to understand how all these different hazards associated with severe weather attack structures, how can we build better, what are the systems that we can improve, uh, and how do we show people those steps uh, that resilience is affordable, and then we can start to bend down the loss curve uh, that we see growing and growing each year. Tell me a little bit more about, one, to go start basic, how do we get hail, and how do you do a hail simulation? That sounds really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, you know, most most intense thunderstorms have hail aloft in them. Um, it can grow from uh, um, particles uh, that freeze or, or grapple, kind of those those melted snowflake conglomerate things. And as they make their kind of horizontal arcing traverse through a thunderstorm, they can collect more ice and water and essentially grow and grow. Um, sometimes they become too heavy and fall out and, and get down to the ground. Sometimes they fall and then they melt before they get down to us. And other times they can hang around up there in a thunderstorm and get really, really, really big uh, and then fall down. And those are the ones that can break things. Um, once you get above that kind of inch and a half or so threshold, that's when you start seeing uh, legitimate property damage. Now for cars, it's a little bit less. Um, but for us, it's um, duplicating the properties of hailstones in the lab. And we can we can propel them or fire them at at materials 
uh, basically using electronic controlled potato guns. So in our small lab, we have a, a single, uh, uh, actually we have two setups, um, basically cannons with barrels that, that have a pressurized air tank and we calibrate that to an exit velocity and associated kinetic energy that would a uh, hailstone would have when it things. Now in our big chamber, if you, if you ever come to visit us, you can go out in there and look straight up and you'll see a whole bunch of light pieces of PVC pipe. Well, that are the barrels that can basically put down a swath of hail across the footprint of our, our large test chamber. We can do uh, three different sizes and shoot as fast as one per second. So a uh, really unique piece of capability. I do a lot of work both in the small lab, very meticulous scientific testing, but we can also test the full roof system on a building. You, you have a job destroying things with hail. That sounds really fun. <laughs> that, that's a, a little bit of what we do. We, uh, we, we, try to, we try to break things in the lab so it doesn't happen out in the real world. That was really interesting. Can't wait to tell my friends and, and family that you guys shoot uh, hail out of potato guns for testing. So that's that's kind of cool. Um, talk about some of the hail studies that you do in the lab. You mentioned something earlier about recreating hail crystals, and, and you're actually yeah. building hail in the in the environment in which it forms. What we found out because of the strength, it can do about three different things when it hits your roof. It can bounce off. That's really hard hail. It can shatter. That's kind of the hard to medium, or it can just become really slushy. Um, that's the very soft hail. And all of those have different kind of types of damage that they produce on your roof. The soft will tend to dislodge all those granules. The, the, hard, uh, the hard bounces and shatters will, will do more cracks and dents. Um, so we realized all that stuff was ma mattered and we needed to simulate it in the lab and also repeat it. You know, that's, that's scientific testing right there is being able to repeat this stuff uh, over and over and over again. And after about eight years of work, um, we released uh, a, a new hail impact test standard for, for asphalt shingles. And we have our, uh, um, actually we rated the products that are um, considered impact rated. Um, and we have a rating scale that's actually out on our website now. So if you're looking to get a, 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 a roof that's more resilient to hail, I would encourage folks to check that out. It's at ibhs.org. Uh, you'll see what products are out there and which ones uh, meet the top of our class and which ones are at the bottom and uh, where you might want to be. Talk about um, the size and how much damage hail creates while we're on the topic. I'd love to hear your, your take on that. Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize hail, we kind of joke, is the Rodney danger field of the severe convective storm hazards. It doesn't get any respect. But in any given year, it's about 60 to 80% of the dollar damage from severe thunderstorms. That's a lot. And we're in probably what will be the 12th straight year of damage totaling over $10 billion dollars. Um, so it's a big piece of the damage that comes from severe thunderstorms every year. Now, to start when you start talking about damage thresholds, of course, we have the National Weather Service severe criteria of one inch. That's when we really start to see some, some issues, dents and things with auto. On the building side, if you start looking at roofing materials, once you get close to that inch and a half mark, that's when you can potentially see some damage. Now, there's a lot of things at play, uh, age of roofs, age of materials, all that, the wind-driven aspect. Um, now, we can go all the way out to the extreme size. If once you get to about three and a half, four-inch hail, that will puncture the plywood roof deck that you have. So you're thinking fall speed's close to 100 miles an hour, um, pretty uh, intense hail. That I hope we never have to see here in the Carolinas. I'm sure it's happened before, but that's that size hail is very rare here. So I don't know what's more interesting, the, the work that y'all do in the lab or the fact that you also have field work. Um, tell us a little bit about your field work and what y'all have done over the years. Yeah, so so way back in uh, 2012, we decided we, we there was all this hail data we needed to go get about strength. Um, and a lot of the, the, the tests and how we test buildings were all rooted in information going back all the way to the 1930s. So nobody had looked at this stuff for a while. 
Plus, we didn't know what what strength actually did. Uh, there was no data on it. Um, so like any good scientist, we just, hey, let's go to the field. And let's go measure it. Um, let's go look. Um, we kind of use the motto, you can learn a lot just by looking. And we kind of took that approach with hail. So we started out back then going out to the field, collecting hailstones after a thunderstorm, doing crush tests, basically measuring the amount of force it took to crush the hailstone. That's how we get to the strength. Uh, making very detailed measurements of them, weighing them all. Uh, and we did that for about really four or five years. That was our focus to collect this really big data set, which is now somewhere over you know, near 4,000 different hailstones that we've tested um, and to guide how we did the lab work that we just talked about. We needed that guide to be able to give us that information. Um, now we've switched a little bit. We, we now go to mapping hail swaths using deployable instruments. Um, I come from a, a background at Texas Tech where we built a lot of deployable weather instruments. So I took that and applied it to hail. Uh, so we have a network of about 18 um, impact sensors that can measure the impact energy of hail. And we can actually deploy them ahead of a thunderstorm and look at what the, the, the size distribution is within that particular storm and how it varies and changes within the swath. That's really, really important for how we look at radar hail detection, uh, even looking into how numerical weather prediction um, manages hail. And how did it go this year? Oh, two, two good missions for us. Spent about, uh, I, think about, I think we spent about 12 days total in the field. Ended up, my target was somewhere, I think, um, five to seven total cases. I think we were right there at seven, um, which was really, really good for us. Um, so, yeah, we, we, that's usually the case. We spend about somewhere 10 to 14 days each year in the field. Um, and we'll continue this going into uh, 2020. Ian, talk about some of the more memorable cases that you guys have covered. Maybe some of the more interesting uh, field tests that you guys have done um, over the past couple of years. Yeah, for, for Hale... Um, a couple of years ago, intercepted a supercell near uh, Eric, Oklahoma, that produced just this really narrow swath of just really big three-inch hail uh, with a concentration maybe you know, 10 to 12 or so per square foot. That's a lot for big hail. Um, it was the first time we got our instruments into hail that size, so that was kind of a unique experience for us. Now, a memorable case, um, and this goes back all the way back to, I think, 2013 or 2014 when we were doing a lot of those crush tests. We encountered some hail. This was in Montana. Um, what we kind of think of as, as low density spongy type hail that when you crushed it, it actually deformed almost like a sponge, but held its shape. It actually didn't fracture. And there's some literature out there that, that talks about how these hailstones can come about. But talk about kind of blow your mind of, of how complicated hail can be. That The fact you could get this spongy kind of hail that you could compress, it basically just did that and then held its shape even after you took the load off of it. It never broke. Um, I'm guessing those are rare. Um, we have yet, we haven't seen that again. It was one particular case and I don't know what kind of environment might produce that, but it's really unique. And it's always been a memorable one from, uh, looking at, at hailstones and I've seen a fair bit of them. We got, we got a, a hail threat, right? So how do we tell businesses and, and homeowners how to protect, better protect their property? One of the things you can do, make sure you can get your car in your garage. If you have one, if you're like me, you got all sorts of stuff in the garage, I couldn't get my truck in there if I tried. Um, but that's a step you can take is make sure you can get your car under cover. And maybe, you know, say we're under a higher risk for a particular day. Um, if you can find a way to keep that vehicle covered, um, that's one way to reduce your auto damage. Now for homes, it's a lot trickier. Um, 
when if, if you're in an area that sees a lot of hailstorms, this is think about the folks in Tornado Alley. If you live in Dallas, um, Oklahoma City, Wichita, we, we saw how sick of people were of hail in, in Dallas this year by they're putting pool noodles on cars and inflatable mattresses. And I'm sure they're tired of getting new roofs every two years. Um, so I'd encourage people to look at our impact rated shingle test results and look for those good performing products. There are uh, uh, impact rated shingles that do perform and, and we tested up to two inch uh, and those top performers really do perform very well. So um, there are products out there from a roof perspective that I would encourage homeowners to look at and talk to your insurance agent too, because in a lot of cases you can get a discount for some of these things. You own a business, you have a building, you have roof, uh, you have items up on the roof, you have your HVAC units, you have um, satellite dish. I mean, what, whatever instrumentation you have up there, is there anything we can tell business centers? For HVAC, that's a very good point because there are some some shields that can be made that actually surround HVAC units that from what we've been able to tell, um, looking at their performance, they, they do they do a decent job. And HVAC, just the damage to the, the fins and coils in an HVAC system can be very, very expensive. So there are a few steps you can take if you're a business owner there. You guys are located here in the Carolinas and many folks may not know that. Um, how did you guys choose the Carolinas? The, the lab came about um, in the Carolinas. There, there was kind of a, a little bit of a bidding process, and this is before my time at IVHS. Uh, we, we wanted to be away from the immediate hurricane coastline. Um, that's uh, having a facility like that that could damage by a significant hurricane um, was a concern uh, for our, our membership. Uh, so that's one reason why we're, we're a fair bit away from the coast. Um, we had a power requirement and we wanted to be um, within a certain distance, basically an hour's drive from a hub airport. Um, so what was settled on was essentially kind of the, the general Charlotte area. Uh, and we had two uh, two sites that were the original ones. Uh, one was um, closer to Gastonia on the just across the South Carolina border up on you know, I-85. And then there's the site that we currently had. And we ended up with a really, really nice um uh, package from the the community down here in, in Chester County. Uh, our, our plot size was a lot larger. Um, we did have some noise concerns, so that that also uh, played a role. Um, and they had the power requirements they need. We're right next to a transmission uh, line, and we had a uh, substation on site. So 105 electric medium voltage drives uh, power the fans, and, and we need some juice. So um, it all came to fruition, and, and there we are out in the, out in Chester County. And so talk about, uh, you were talking about hurricanes, talk about some of the wind studies that you guys do there. You yep. have this big wind tunnel and you actually have uh, some model scale homes and you can do all kind of testing it in this facility. The very unique thing about, about our facilities is, is that we can do full scale home testing. We can look at a full home system and that's really important from a wind perspective to understand how the wind forces essentially transferred through all the different connections that are within your home, uh, roof to wall, through the walls, wall to foundation, and all the connections in between. You have to really look at it in a system perspective to understand how wind essentially attacks structures and what you can do to mitigate it. So we do a bit of garage door vulnerabilities. I was seeing that garage doors can be a huge damage amplifier. Think about their they're big hole, really, if they fail in your house. It allows wind to get in and start acting inward, pushing up and out uh, and can lead to failures. Once you start the damage cascade, it, it just goes. Um, tornadoes, it happens very, very fast. Hurricanes, it can happen over the course of, say, 6 to 12 hours. 
Um, but that cascade is what we're trying to stop, start, stop the start of that. Um, and we think we can uh, find those mitigation solutions that are not only um, useful, but also affordable too. So before we kind of wrap up the interview, can you tell us a little bit about how you forecast and how you decide where you're going during your field studies? Yeah, the, the logistics are actually a fair bit challenging. So we are a, a good distance away from from essentially what is Tornado Alley or the Great Plains. Uh, we like it out there, you know, good road networks, good visibility, although we are going to try to explore some southeast tail. There's some some environmental questions that we have that I think we're going to try to tackle that. So we basically have to rely on medium range forecasting. Um, so we're looking for just general pattern support for severe weather. So is the Gulf of Mexico open? Is there good moisture transport northward? Maybe not necessarily if there's a trough, but is there just generally enough flow aloft to support supercells? Sometimes you didn't have the surface features underneath the best flow aloft. It, it, it kind of became a day-to-day, -day, almost a mesoscale type forecasting scenario, which is very hard for us in terms of when we pull the trigger. Uh, so we, we work our teams on about a 48-hour leave or 48-hour kind of go-no-go uh, -no -go scenario. Um, using DFS output, Euro output, try to get our best feel um, that we're going to get at least three operation days out of a mission. We got to have some kind of confidence that we're at least going to get three. It's just not worth shipping equipment out um, and bringing the team to the field. So, okay, say we give a go. Um, we actually ship five big Pelican cases of equipment. FedEx is fantastic. Um, out to some target cities, and it's usually where we can store equipment. So Norman, Oklahoma at the National Weather Center, have lots of colleagues there. Uh, we've used my wife's uh, um, grandma's garage in Wichita to store all the cases and equipment. Um, so we do that, pick our target city, fly in. Um, we use rental vehicles. Um, we do try to stay out of the hail as much as we're, we're researching hail, and we've done a pretty good job of that. Um, and we outfit them, get our instruments ready, take all the equipment we need, leave the cases behind, and off we go. And usually each mission is about seven days. So there's some logistical challenges there, um, given our distance, uh, but we've we've managed it quite well over the years. When you're renting the car, do you have to kind of stay quiet about what you're really doing with the car? Yeah, there's one hail. We were out in the field for a hail event in Cheyenne, and this was a port a rental car dealership at the Denver airport. They were dealing with a whole bunch of people who were bringing back hail damaged cars. And I kept thinking in my head, I'm like, we're running a hail research project, and we got perfectly fine vans here. Uh, but yeah, for us, it, it's it's not a, it's a safety concern to stay out of the hail, and we, we do a good job of that. You were talking about these instruments. Can you kind of give us an idea of what's on these instruments? What, yeah. What, what, what it's like? Yeah, certainly. They're. Uh, they're on little tripods. They're basically little engineering tripods. And then the plate itself is a little small pyramid. It's one foot by one foot. And it's actually based on a design that was developed at NASA, uh, Kennedy Space Center, and, and was published in the literature. Uh, so we use that same plate design. It's got a little acoustic sensor, a piezoelectric disc um, that can record the vibration of the plate. So the higher the, the signal amplitude of that vibration, the larger the kinetic energy of the hailstone that hit the plate. And then we can work backwards to estimate a size. The unique thing about ours, we actually use robotics microcontrollers as our data system. It's called, we use an Arduino Do. It's about 35 bucks, uh, a lot of maker components. Um, we needed to make them cheap so we can have a bunch of them. Um, and it samples really, really fast, about uh, 5,000 times per second. Uh, so we can actually resolve impacts at five hundredths of a second. Uh, so that's pretty neat. And it's got some switches for on, off, and data control to make it easily user-friendly. Um, I think we set a record for deployment time of one of these this year in under 20 seconds. 
Um, I'm going to give out a shout out to Hank Pogorzelski, who's in our Tampa office, who's been with us in the field every single year since we started. Hank went out the door, set the probe up, and was back in the car before I could log the information of where the actual instrument was. So it had to be somewhere in the 15 to 20 second range. So a uh, big old tip of the cap to Hank. I think he set a, a time speed record there. Well, Ian, we, we certainly appreciated um, you giving us some of your time tonight. If our followers want to continue the research you guys are doing or follow along, how can they do that? Yeah, so we got a couple ways. So first of all, if you're if you're a consumer out there and you want to see some of these DIY resilient type solutions and things you can do for your home, go to disastersafety.org. That's our kind of front-facing consumer website. Uh, for some of the research work, you can go to ibhs.org. Uh, but please follow us on Twitter at disastersafety. You can also follow our hail research um, specifically at IBHS Hail Study. Um, you'll get a kind of an inside look on that Twitter account as to what we're doing in hail. We, we've had many guests on this show, and I think you've got one of the coolest jobs because you get to use potato guns and mix it with weather. I mean, I don't know how much better that can be. So, 